Well, last week, in part one of this four-week series that we're calling Distinctives, we walked through Matthew 16, uh, verses 23 to 33, and looked at the characteristics of a church that Christ builds and is building. And those characteristics included a profession, a foundation, a conviction, a commission, and an assertion. And all five of those things um, included or involved or revolved around or centered on or pointed to the person and work and results of Christ's salvific and redemptive work on behalf of His people. All five of those things involved and pointed to the gospel of Jesus. And of course, we said that we are committed to those characteristics and that we believe to, uh, it's important for us to remain true to those characteristics if we want to uh, make sure that we refrain from the world's pressure to be and do what the world thinks that we should be and do. We want to stay on mission and on message and on ministry and be, always be that type of church that Christ builds in His building. That's the distinctive. We desire to be a church that Christ builds and is building. Tonight we come to the second distinctive, and that is we want to be a church that lives freely. And I want to say from the beginning that living freely is more than just a catchy phrase that's a part of our mission, and it's more than simply a motto that looks good on a website or on t-shirts. Living freely is actually a description of a life that is to be lived and can only be lived in light of the gospel. Actually, it's a life that not only should, but must be lived by a church that Christ builds and is building. It, uh, I could put it another way and simply say living freely isn't optional. And I say that, and I use those absolute terms on purpose, for really for three reasons. One, if you remember from our study of Galatians last summer in Galatians chapter 5, we know that living freely is the kind of life for which Christ died. Galatians 5.1 says that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. The second reason that we, uh, or I believe that it's not optional is because it's the kind of life that we've been called to. Later on, Paul in that very same chapter in verse uh, 13 says, you have been called to freedom. And then the third reason it's not optional is because Living freely is a, a life, Paul equates that with a life that is lived in step with the Spirit. And he says that the Spirit is not only the one who seals us, but He indwells us. And so, in the end, I don't think it's too strong, I don't think it's wrong to say that it's not optional. Actually, I would say it's not wrong or too strong to say that to not live freely is to live in direct con contradiction to the gospel. 
And we see that not only in Galatians 5, but we also see it in our text tonight in Romans chapter 14. And I've broken the passage down, I've broken the chapter down into three points. Tonight we're going to look at remembering our mutual standing, exercising our mutual restraint, and thirdly, seeking our mutual upbuilding. Remembering our mutual standing, exercising our mutual restraint, and seeking our mutual upbuilding. And as is our custom, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Well, Father, we believe that through your word, you grant us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. And so we ask that you would give us ears to hear, that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. Would you, by your Spirit, um, make it so that we would receive it with faith and love and lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives? Would you, in these moments, use me as you see fit? And it's in the name of Jesus and for the sake of his church that I pray. Amen and amen. Well, before we jump into the first point, I... I think it would be best, because of my approach tonight, and I I do this sometimes, I don't do it all the time, but tonight, based upon my approach as we walk through the passage, is to reread the the chapter, but in two sections, and I want to begin by reading verses 1 to 12, and then later on we'll read 13 to 23, Uh, but let's do that so as we walk through this that it's fresh in in the forefronts of our minds. So I'm going to begin in verse 1. This is God's Word. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand." One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Let one who observes the day observe it to honor the Lord. Let the one who eats eat in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Again, this is the word of the Lord. Well, the church at Rome was a very diverse church. Two groups, primarily two groups of people, uh, one former Jews and one former Gentiles. They were Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And in in the midst of that diversity, there was uh, both good and bad news. The good news was both groups were seeking to please the Lord. 
It was their desire to please him. Those coming out of Judaism in Rome were not like the Judaizers that Paul had to fight against in Galatia. Those in Galatia were looking to, um, to the fulfillment of the ceremonial law to save themselves uh, or to, they needed to fulfill the, the ceremonial law and, and their works needed to be added to grace so that they might be saved. But here, these Jewish Christians, uh, like the, the Gentiles coming out of their paganism, were all for the by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone gospel. They all understood that while they had been set free from the curse of the law, they had not been set free from the obligations of the law. They all together knew that they were to be holy because God had called them to be holy. They understood the importance of obeying the Word of God that they were at one time unable to obey, but God in His grace had set them free to obey, and He had not only set them free, but given them both the ability and the desire to fulfill and obey the law, God's Word. So, In other words, the issues that they were experiencing weren't within those black and white areas governed by precepts and principles and commandments of Scripture that were very clear and non-negotiable because they knew the moral law was holy, righteous, and good, as Paul said it was in Romans 7. So the issues were, they were experiencing were in those gray areas where questions or answers to questions like should we or shouldn't we or do we or don't we weren't in the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence deduced from Scripture. To put it another way, they were areas that fell within the category of what we call Christian liberty. And this leads to the bad news. Because those coming out of Judaism were very slow disengaging from their attachment to and practice of the ceremonial law. Old habits were simply hard to break. They they weren't looking to the ceremonial law to, again, for salvation. But they did believe, they couldn't shake the idea, they couldn't get it out of their heads that somehow keeping the ceremonial law honored the Lord. And so they had determined to keep the ceremonial law and, and they were they were still wanting the law to they were still wanting to please the law by fulfilling the law to the point that some had become vegetarians in the process they were so concerned about doing what they believed the lord wanted them to do that they were trying to abstain from from meat that was not kosher they were trying to abstain from meat that had been sacrificed to idols much as those much like those did in Corinth and so to do that the safest way to do that was to to not eat meat and just to to become vegetarians now they were also continuing to celebrate those spring and fall festivals or feasts and observing holy days and sabbaths that went along with them that we briefly looked at in our study of Leviticus 23 last fall 
Now, on the other hand, you had those coming out of paganism, and they had emerged out of their paganism uh, with very little attachment to anything because they hadn't really been pressed or expected or required to follow really much of anything in their paganism except their own fleshly desires. So for them, freedom was an easy concept to grasp and actually was something that at times needed to be reined in. And that was evidenced in the fact that for them, there wasn't any food off the table. It was all there to be enjoyed. And the only days that they were concerned about was the Lord's Day on which they gathered for worship. And as a result... The Jews had been labeled weak in faith, and the Gentiles had been labeled strong in faith. The Jews were labeled weak in faith because they weren't grasping the freedom that was theirs in the Lord Jesus. They were actually afraid to enjoy all that the Lord had given them to enjoy. But the Gentiles were strong in faith because they did. They did understand. And, and the two together, you can imagine, were not mixing well. And quite honestly, they just they weren't being nice. They had begun quarreling because not only did they have opinions about what could be eaten and not eaten in the days that were to be, to, to be esteemed, they also had developed opinions about one another. And they weren't being shy about sharing those. And again, they weren't being nice. And in the end, both were, were living in direct contradiction to the gospel. But Paul makes it clear in these first 10 verses or so, or 12 verses, he makes it clear that the differences, while detrimental, if they weren't dealt with, were not insurmountable. There was a way that things could be fixed, and that's because the problems were not due to the fact that they disagreed or had different opinions, it was because they were quarreling about those different opinions. They weren't handling those opinions, differing opinions well. And he says the first step to rectify this situation was for, for them to welcome one another to receive one another, to embrace one another, to come alongside one another. In verse 1, he says the stronger should welcome the weaker. But in verses 2 and 3, the way he phrases that, he's really talking about a reciprocal welcoming, and he wants the stronger to welcome the weak and the weak to welcome the strong. And then at the end of verse 3, he gives the motivation for that welcoming, and he says, for God has welcomed. Welcome one another because God has welcomed you. And, and what he wrote to the church at Ephesus was, was true for the church at Rome. And this was what he was stressing. All of them were at one time at enmity with God. They were enemies of his. They were hostile toward him. But hostility, that hostility that between them and the Lord had been dealt with. And the hostility that they had with God also had created hostility between the two groups. And just as God had dealt with the hostility between them and Him, He also dealt with simultaneously the hostility between one another. So the hostility that He, he 
took care of between him and them, he took care of between them together. Through the cross of Christ, through the death of Christ, the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Greek had been destroyed. And Christ's work on the, uh, on the cross provided access to both groups. They were now no longer two groups. They were one group. And they had the same access to God. Jews did not need to become like Gentiles, and Gentiles did not need to become like Jews to come before, come before the Lord. Uh, the two people were now one, and that hostility had been broken down. And this is why he says in verse 8, we are the Lord's. We are the Lord's. They are now one in Christ. They were all citizens of God's kingdom. They all had rights and privileges as a part of that kingdom. Neither had more rights or weightier responsibilities or greater privileges than the other because they were Jews or because they were Gentiles. They were all on equal footing. They all had mutual standing. They were both members of God's household. They were now all, were all of them were sons and daughters of God, and all of them were brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he also says all of them would stand before the judgment seat of God, and they would all give an account to God. No one was exempt. They had all stood equally before the Lord and were found wanting according to that same equitable standard. They were sinners before a holy God and in need of pardon and cleansing. And all of them would stand equally before the Lord and give an account for their lives according to the same equitable standard. And, and he says, fortunately, all of them, just like all of them would stand before him, all of them would be recipients of God's grace and all of them would be upheld by the Lord because he was the one and only one that was able to make them stand. And it was this mutual standing before the Lord. The mutual standing that provided not only the foundation, but also the motivation for welcoming one another. And to live freely. Well, the second point we need to notice is that living freely involves exercising mutual restraint. We need to remember our mutual standing but we need to exercise mutual restraint. While Paul's initial focus was on the stronger, the Gentiles, welcoming the weaker, the Jews, again, the rest of the chapter really kind of puts them all together. This is about all of them because they were both living in contradiction to the gospel. The Jews uh, were overly concerned with what they ate and the days that they thought should be esteemed, and they were legalistically judging the Gentiles, looking at the Gentiles and saying they were falling short for not holding the same standards that they were. But then you have the Gentiles who, who not only understood and were living fully in the freedom that Christ had given them, they in turn were looking down, arrogantly looking down their noses at the Jews because they didn't get it. And the bottom line was both groups were believing themselves to be more spiritual than they really were. They were just doing it in different ways. 
Both were arrogantly and pridefully elevating themselves above the others. And Paul said both groups needed to stop. Stop doing what you're doing. Exercise restraint in these responses and reactions that you're having to one another. And as I mentioned a moment ago, that was because the issues that they were quarreling about were, weren't within those black and white areas that were governed by the precepts and the principles and commandments of Scripture. They were quarreling over these gray areas, these issues that involved non-essentials, these, these issues that, in, that were negotiable. And because they fell in that category... It was possible, it was actually possible for both groups to be in right standing before the Lord and at the same time have those different opinions. They were all standing equally before the Lord and in right standing because of Christ. And the whole time they were, they were coming down on different sides of different issues and choosing to participate or avoid, or avoid different activities and and, and the reality was both groups were attempting to fulfill a role that only God could fulfill. Only God is the rightful judge. It is only God who is able to judge in the black areas and white areas and gray areas. And Paul says very, very pointedly, you guys need to stop looking, to your, uh, looking at other people and focus on yourselves. And that's because no one, absolutely no one, is going to give an account to you for their behavior. All of you are going to give an account to the Lord. So Paul said, in these negotiable, non-essential areas, everyone not only had the right, but the responsibility to make up their own minds. And not only make up their own minds, but they were to be fully convinced and hold convictions that they had developed. And because they had the right to make up their own minds and to develop those convictions and hold those convictions, they needed to allow other people to do it as well. And when other people made up their minds about those things, they needed to realize rather than respond in judgment or in condescension, that they needed to pause and remember that everyone was simply trying to please the Lord. They, they wanted, they, they, they were living for the Lord. Everyone was doing the best that they, they could do and with their knowledge and understanding they have as they attempted to live in a manner worthy of their calling. They were all walking this walk of faith and they were muddling along the best they knew how. And judgment, and, and rather than judge and despise, they should exercise that mutual restraint and give thanks to the Lord for the progress that was being made and the progressive sanctification that was taking place in the lives of everyone involved. Well, that brings us to the third point. 
and seeking mutual upbuilding. And again, like I said, I want to read this next section before we do that. Picking up in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide not to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whatever or whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And in these last several verses, despite the obvious potential for the weak in faith to be pharisaical and attempt to bind the consciences of others, Paul focuses here and turns his attention strictly to the stronger and the behavior toward the weaker doesn't eliminate the fact of, of what the, the weaker might do, but Paul was more concerned, and, and we know why by the language, but he, his concern was that the stronger, uh, he didn't want them to do anything that would carelessly or purposefully cause the weaker to, to stumble or violate his conscience. And his argument went like this, and we're going to talk about this in these terms of of meat, okay, of uh, meat eaters and vegetarians. Uh, Not to uh, offend anybody, but this is the context here, okay. Um, The Lord had declared that all food was clean. Everything could be eaten. Um, Eating meat was not a sin, but because the vegetarian had become fully convinced in his or her own mind that for them, one of the ways that they could please the Lord and honor Him was by not eating. If they, in fact, did eat meat, they would be violating their conscience and they would actually be in sin because they were not eating in faith. I want to kind of say that a couple times just so we get that. Eating meat was not a sin, but they had determined this is how we're going to honor the Lord. And because they were fully convinced and that was a way to honor the Lord, if they had eaten meat, they would have violated their conscience because what they believed about meat hadn't changed, but they just said, well, I'm going to eat meat. They would have violated their conscience. They would not have been eating in faith because they believed it was wrong. And because of that, 
they would have actually been in sin. The Lord would have considered something that wasn't sin by itself as sin because of how they were approaching it. So, therefore, if the meat eater were to come before the vegetarian in the presence of the vegetarian brother or sister carelessly by not thinking about them, by not putting their knees before their own, or if they came purposefully to flaunt their freedom, which is more than likely what happens, I'll show them I'm free and they need to get over it. By doing that, they would have been causing that weaker brother, the vegetarian, to stumble in sin. And Paul was adamantly opposed to anyone doing anything to cause a weaker brother to violate their conscience. He was ultimately putting, putting them responsible for the fact that they were now in sin and to the point that he says, when you do that, you are destroying the one for whom Christ died. Christ gave his life for them. And you're mocking him. You're not taking care of the one for whom Christ died. And so Paul said, even though eating meat was not sinful and was well within the boundaries of freedom, because the vegetarian had developed this conviction to not eat meat, the meat eater, to, to exhibit his love for his brother, should set aside his freedom and not eat meat when they were together. Did he have the freedom to eat? Yes. He also had the freedom not to. And the Lord said, don't, for the sake of your brother. They didn't have to become vegetarian, right? That would violate their own conscience. You see what Paul's doing here. He's not saying that either one of them are wrong in their opinion. He's saying what they're doing to one another because of their opinions is what, is what matters. So don't flaunt your freedom. You don't want somebody else to violate their conscience because you cease to walk in love. You've become a stumbling block. It causes them to sin. So what you need to do is just simply wait to eat your meat later. Eat your meat when you're with somebody else. But he also says, you know, and because, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's just best to keep what you do in your freedom between you and the Lord. Not everybody has to know. And he says that's important for a couple of reasons. First, he says the kingdom is not about what we eat or drink. And to use his words to the Colossians, it's not about uh, what we handle, taste, and touch. He says the kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the kingdom is not about external things. It's about internal things. He's saying what Jesus spent a lot of time in the gospel saying, especially to the Pharisees. Right? Over and over, he would say to the Pharisees, you guys are fixated on outward appearances and moralistic behavior, and, and he continually confronted them about how they were whitewashed tombs, and the outsides of their cups were, were sparkling clean, but inside they were dirty and stained. 
and to continue to battle over these external things was causing all of them to ignore the internal that mattered. And secondly, he says not being a stumbling block or a hindrance aids in the overall goal, which is peace and mutual upbringing. Right? The goal is for them. They, they were to pursue this. They were to pursue this mutual um, upbuilding and peace. The goal was for the weaker in faith to grow stronger in the faith, but it was also for the stronger in faith to grow stronger in the faith. They were all to be growing. And that included the weaker growing in their knowledge and understanding of the freedom that was actually theirs in Christ. But if the Gentiles went around flaunting their freedom, it wasn't going to convince the Jews to to join their side. It was actually going to to turn them away and, and believe that even more strongly in what they believed. There had to be another way to go, to go about doing that. And so what they were actually doing is tearing one another down. And, and he wanted, Paul wanted them to do what the Lord wanted them to do, which was to build one another, to encourage. Encourage one another. Some of you children can sing that with me, right? Encourage one another and build each other up. Up, 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 up. Come on. All right. What did he want from them? He wanted them in his words earlier in this letter to love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. And from Ephesians, he said, and to not let any corrupting talk come out of their mouths, but only such as is good for building up so that they would all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature and fullness of Christ. He wanted to see them mature and grow, and they weren't going to do that as long as they were tearing one another down. Mutual upbuilding. Well, I, I don't, I mean, the, the takeaways are obvious, aren't they? We probably could stop, but I'm not going to. Because I want us to think about these th- three things quickly, Okay. We, we must remember that living freely is not optional. Christ died for our freedom. We're called to freedom. It's a part of living in step with the Spirit. So in light of that, because it's our desire as a church to live freely, we're, we're committed to remembering our mutual standing before the Lord. We all must remember that. Despite, despite the world's attempts the growing attempts to inundate us with messages that divide us and drive us into tribes and to war against each other, we want to clearly and consistently proclaim that we are all one and on the same footing in regards to our standing. We equally stand, mutually stand together before a holy God. And it's only Christ that enables us to stand. You don't need to be like me. I don't need to be like you in these areas. We're one in Christ. 
We're all citizens of God's kingdom. We all have the same rights and responsibilities. Nobody has more rights and weightier responsibilities or greater privileges than the other because of anything that we've done or anything about us. We're all members of God's household. We're all sons and daughters of God. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And that should affect how we relate with one another. We're also committed to strive for, to exercise mutual restraint. And that means we make a conscious effort to refrain from the quarreling over issues in the gray areas of life that are not expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence deduced from Scripture. We do strive to live in the black and white areas as people, in Luther's words, whose consciences are bound by the Word of God. But we also strive to live in those gray areas as people who do not bind one another's consciences where the Word does not bind our consciences. You can hear the arrogance even in the statement. Why would we Sinful people attempt to bind the consciences of others when the Word of God doesn't even do it in those particular areas. So legalistic judging, arrogant, demeaning uh, responses to one another for a, a lack of understanding and living in freedom, are, both of those things are out of bounds. We are all given the responsibility, the right and the responsibility to make up our own minds in those areas and we, and we develop convictions and we hold to those convictions and we allow one another to do the same. And then finally, because, by the way, because we're all striving to honor the Lord. That's what we're doing. So three, and finally, we're committed to seeking mutual upbuilding. And that means five things, okay? One, we strive not to be stumbling blocks, carelessly or purposefully, through the flaunting of our freedom. Simply. Two, we're willing to set our freedom aside for the sake of one another. Right? Where we are free to we need to remember we're always free not to. And we need to do that for one another. Three, we desire to have thoughtful conversations regarding Christian liberty. Right? We want to sit down and have those conversations in those areas where we have freedom. And we want to talk about that. We want to talk about why we have those freedoms. And we want to help one another in the development of those convictions. That's part of growing and maturing in our faith. And fourthly, it's our desire to be strong enough, right? He says, develop your convictions, make up your mind. So we need to be strong enough in those convictions that when someone exercises their freedom, we don't get all bent out of shape. This is a two-way street here. We need to 
they need to exercise their freedom in it, not tempt us to violate our conscience because we're firm on what we believe, and we're okay with that. And then finally, we desire to keep these freedoms we have in particular areas. Sometimes it's appropriate to keep them between us and the Lord. Not every, uh, everyone does not necessarily need to know where we stand on every issue of freedom. And we live in a time, really we live in a time when it seems like that many believe it's more Christian to share their opinions in these gray areas than it, uh, than it is to share the gospel. We want to talk about these gray areas, and so we feel like it's necessary to share our opinions about leisure time and alcohol and tobacco and diets and fashion and voting and political involvement and educational choices and medicinal options and various economic systems. And while in some cases, silence is complicity in a negative sense, We need to remember as well that at times, there are times when silence speaks volumes in a positive sense. And what we need to do is learn. May God grant us the wisdom and discernment to know when to speak and when to listen. We desire to be a church that lives freely. Let's pray.